I'm Will Beatty. I'm Ben Picari. And we're two graduate students at the University of Notre Dame's Medieval Institute. We're here to chat with students and scholars of the medieval world about what they do and how they came to do it. So who have we got today, Ben? Well, today we're sitting down with Dr. Andrew Irving, Assistant Professor of Religion and Heritage at the University of Groningen. We're talking to him today about his academic journey and his uh, fantastic recent lecture at the Medieval Institute on the Utah Codex. Sounds great. Well, let's go and meet him in the Middle Ages. Welcome, Dr. Irving. Um, it's a pleasure to sit down with you today. Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> um, one question we, we would like to start with. You're at the grocery store. It's a long line. Mm-hmm. You start chatting, perhaps, with the person in front of you, behind you. Mm-hmm. They ask you, so what do you do for a living? Uh, How do you typically <laughs> answer that question? I say, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, recently I think I'm, I've, I'm slowly beginning, it's taken me a while, mm-hmm. to articulate that I am a cultural historian. Mm. And that allows me to swing in a variety of directions depending yes. on how people pick up on that. If I say that I work on religious history or I work on, ma- or I say I work on manuscripts, because yeah. often people have like a, ooh, manuscripts, you know, Dan Brown, you know, and, right. and, and then there's some sort of like a, a sort of fantasy world of manuscripts. That's, yes. But if I, I don't usually say I'm a medievalist. What I've noticed, however, so my bigger challenge is not in the supermarket. It's more mm. in the academic world. So I'm teaching in a theology and religious studies faculty, so, and I, I've always introduced myself in circles as you know, people, you're around the table and, you know, what do you do? And I, and I always say, I'm a medievalist. Yes. And that usually people's, oh, a medievalist, right? <laughs> There's nothing goes off in their imagination about that. And so now I tend to say I'm a cultural historian. I work on material culture, mostly in the Middle Ages, to yes. my to my religious studies colleagues, because... It's not going to get me any brownie points for being a medievalist there. Whereas in the supermarket, people might say, oh, Middle Ages, castles, no, yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, and so they have something to fill in. Yeah. Does it tend to be the same kind of, when you're in the supermarket talking to people and, you know, that kind of thing comes up, does it seem to be this, tend to be the same touch points of castles, knights, dragons? Yeah, yeah, and and a little bit, if, if, you, if you say the manuscripts, then they immediately think of Dan Brown and, like, mm-hmm. That that world that happens a lot. Uh, that happens a, uh, and and it's fun because then I can say, well, yes, I worked I work in the Vatican Library, and then uh, and then you've got some and, and you say, yeah, it really is um, amazing, um, and uh, and people have you can uh, you can work and build on people's imagination of the past in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't do a lot of work with castles, so I I don't work much <laughs> on uh, military history and so forth. Yes. So I can't really do that, but I can do monks, you know, and that's also a little bit of a a world that is open to medieval imagination, uh, you know, the general public's imagination of the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I've done a little bit on medicine, so they can also connect with that. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Mm. Yes. That, that that's a very that's very intriguing that it's harder to uh, clarify what you do to your peers <laughs> than to a complete stranger. <laughs> but that is that is the nature that is the nature of being in a broader field such as history or a literature field. You know, I feel like yeah, medieval concerns are sometimes 
ancillary maybe to what they think of their own feelings. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, well, yes, I think it's true that I think um, perhaps because of a splintering of disciplines or perhaps because of a drive to be oriented towards present concerns, um, not only in religious studies and theology, but in other faculties too. There's a kind of like, oh, you know, you need to be with what's happening now. And then as soon as you say Middle Ages, people say, well, how is that relevant now? Whereas if you say to the person on the street, Middle Ages, it, it kind of opens up a world of imagination for them. A lot of the imagination might be mm, questionably historically accurate, sure. but you've got something to build on then. Yes. Yeah. 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 So for you, um, when did that interest in Middle Ages in the medieval period begin? Was it age two? Was it <laughs> in grade school or later? When did that world of imagination come <laughs> up to you? Well, you know, I, I grew up on a dairy farm in rural northern New Zealand. And so I didn't, so there wasn't any medieval uh, uh, European Middle Ages on my doorstep. What it was associated for me was with uh, a past, a, a, a distant past that was far away. And I wanted, I wanted to get closer to that. Um, I didn't really do anything on that, you know, as a, I didn't have any opportunity to do anything on that when I was uh, a child or a teenager. But when I went to university, I, I did... Um, uh, French and German, I majored in French and German, and uh, we had to do medieval French and medieval German oh, as wow. part of those majors in those days. I don't know whether they still do, but we did then, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was all, you know, uh, late medieval, obviously, yes. uh, vernacular. Um, tradition. Oh, we did Chanson de Roland um, as well. Um, so what would that be? Sorry, uh, I'm yeah. not too good with with old French. Oh yeah, okay. So the, it's the song of Roland. Uh, so this uh, sort of story of uh, really fighting against uh, Arab forces on the uh, uh, invading invading Frankish territory, uh, and then the kind of Frankish pushback against it, and the the hero is Roland. Um, uh, so uh, and then that stories told in old French. And then we also read other very vulgar literature with lots of, you know, uh, farting and sex and all kinds of things from late medieval uh, uh, French sources. I loved it. And we, I, I both had very, I had very good professors, um, I would say, the University of Auckland, both in the French and in the German. And I was planning actually to do my master's in um, the, uh, the Percival e epic, which is another sort of late medieval um, epic that was told both in, in, in German and in French. It originated in French and then uh, the Song of Roses and then was put into, into uh, Wolfram von Eschenberg's uh, thing on Parsifal. And I got interested in that because I, my peculiar teenage rebellion was to discover Wagner. So, <laughs> and of course, Wagner isn't really, you know, you know, Wagner is Wagner. He's not the Middle Ages, but I, but I loved Wagner's Parsifal, and then yeah. I wanted to read the source material, and but then I abandoned ship uh, and decided no, I wanted to do theology. So then I did a degree in theology instead of doing that master's. Um, so it didn't, but that that stayed with me, mm. uh, and then I came back to it uh, through a different through a different lens later. Yeah. Was coming to Notre Dame always on your radar? 
No, that ca- that came out on my radar. Uh, well, it, so I after I finished my undergraduate degrees in New Zealand, I worked in a bookstore for a while. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, so I managed a bookstore. And then I thought, mm, what I really want to do is study liturgy. Mm-hmm. And Notre Dame had a very um, has a very strong liturgy program. Mm-hmm. It also had a, a summer school program. So you could do three consecutive summers. If you studied six weeks for three summers, like really intensive courses, then you had to do a reading program in between. And then in the fourth year, you came back for your comps and you could have your master's degree in those those days. And and so I thought it was the easiest way for me to test to see if I could make it in a big American university. So and you couldn't study liturgy in New Zealand or in Australia, so I had to go further afield. So I so I came for that, and then I got the bug, and thought I have to come full time. So I did came back full time. So it was through liturgy that I came, and then when I was here, I did a, me- a course in medieval uh, liturgy, and then thought, oh, there's okay. the Middle Ages. I can do liturgy and the Middle Ages, and then I came to the medieval institute. Yeah. What was that first uh, draw toward? more theological study as well as liturgy in particular? Um, I think, you know, for me, I mean, I think everyone would say, say this about their discipline. Yeah. But I think it brings together a lot of a lot of uh, things that I'm interested in. So liturgy has a little bit of uh, th- theology. It has ways of thinking about God and what it means to be human, which is an interesting discourse. It has history. You can study history in it and the historical sources. It's about practice, yes. uh, and it's about things. And you can you can deal with material culture and art and architecture and music. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of multifaceted. It's like it's like a Wagnerian opera, um, but it's 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 it's, a, it's a liturgical instead with all of these multiple um, facets. You know, and that gave me. That both interests me and then gives you a kind of range of skills that you can then use later um, in your, you know, when you need to teach yeah. and do research. Yeah. Yeah. And coming from New Zealand to a big American institution, which is something I can sort of relate to coming from the UK and, and also wondering, can I make it in a big, scary American university? Yeah. How was that? Yeah. Well, I mean... I, it was scary when I first arrived here. And also, you know, culture shock. I was coming yeah. from Auckland and, you know, arriving here. Well, I'm in the Midwest of the United States. So I had never been to America before, so it was completely new. But, you know, what I found is, you know, the, the, grad, the graduate school population is very... You're with your cohort. Yes. And they're also mostly from elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> And so you instantly, therefore, bond together. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, uh, and that provides an orientation. I, I think I, I regularly needed to, um, my friends would always accuse me of escaping regularly to, uh, off campus to go to, you know, Chicago or whatever. And, of course, when I was doing my research, I was often away doing uh, in Italy and, and France. Um, but I, th- I, I had an attachment here for a long time, and it's, it still feels a little bit like a home away from home because I was, <laughs> because a lot of very important people for me in my early adult development 
were here, both professors yeah. and fellow students. And because Kalamazoo is nearby, then every time I come from Kalamazoo, I get to see a lot of that cohort. Because right. um, Kalamazoo is sort of the big North American medieval conference, right, where exactly. hundreds of medievalists from across the world all come together to to share their research. Yeah, yeah. And so... And and what I like about Kalamazoo, so it's this huge, huge conference, thousands of people, um, some crazy, some not crazy. <laughs> um, but uh, 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 it's very relaxed for a conference. So um, some conferences are really, you know, very focused or they're more like more like expert meetings. You know, they're super serious. Um, um, and some are big but also have job interviews attached. So there's lots of nervous graduate students running around looking like they want to throw up. And Kalamazoo is, you know, at the sweet moment of the year, at, you know, middle of May, when most people have either finished their academic year in in North America or they're just about to finish uh, in the U.S. and Canada. And so people are beginning to relax a little bit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is true. And so they get to share their research and connect with each other. And I think both aspects of that are great. And with what's great about Notre Dame is that, I mean, for, as a medievalist, is it's so close to that, that you can go there easily. And then when you come back there, you see people from Notre Dame and your colleagues who've come through there regularly. So you get to maintain those connections. Yeah. 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 I really like that. But that's fantastic. Yeah. Have you made it to Kalamazoo yet? I, I have not. COVID no. has... Turn uh, everything online. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, this is the end of my first year when everything started to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the same. I I had one year where I could have done it my first year, but I didn't have anything I felt I wanted to present, yeah. and I really regret that because yeah, yeah. COVID yeah. ever since. Yeah, one you day had to experience the really hot rooms and cheap wine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you've got that joy awaiting you. <laughs> oh, can't wait! Can't wait! We look forward to it. So, what was your dissertation on? here what, what did that what, what how did you end up lasering laser focusing these broader interests yeah. well so um i worked, wrote on a group of gospel books okay. from southern Italy, from a monastery called uh, monte casino and i start I, that was because i got that you know those interest in performance and things and history coalesced for me in liturgy and then i wanted to focus on okay so now i need a thing and what I was interested in was the tension implied in a book that seems to be written for reading. I mean, it's, it is written for reading, but people are doing all kinds of other things with this book that are not about reading. Uh, they are swearing oaths on it. They're using it to make bishops. They're parading it around their armies. They're doing all kinds of um, uh, interesting things with books. So I started with that in general, the phenomena of doing things with sacred books. And then I decided to focus on a particular series of books. And that enabled me to then really seriously build some skills in manuscript studies and paleography and codicology, skills that you really need to analyze the manuscripts themselves um, rather than just be on what people are doing in general with books. How was... I'm assuming you get to then go and see these manuscripts. Yeah. Well, well, how was that experience? Oh, it was just amazing. I mean, I totally got the bug. Um, so what happened I, in the 
here in the in, in Notre Dame, we had a course, I'm sure you still have, you know, the paleography course. And so we had to, uh, I had to do a description, or I think of a book of hours or something in our special collections. So I did that. And that was, I kind of had a bug, but, uh, you know, I was interested and learned a lot. And then I met a uh, uh, woman from Toronto, actually, Virginia Brown, who is a specialist in Southern Italian manuscripts. I decided to focus on Southern Italy and Monte Cassino, and she was really one of the leading figures in Southern Italian um, paleography, Virginia Brown. And so I went to a conference that was held at Ohio State at the Center for uh, Epigraphical Studies and Paleography there, and she had, it was a conference in her honor. She had just retired, she, uh, it was, and but I wasn't going to meet her. I, I, I sort of got her there because I, well, it would also be useful to meet her. But I really wanted to meet the person, one other person who was supposed to be there, the librarian from Monte Cassino. Because I thought, well, I have to go to Monte Cassino. I have to meet him. Yeah, yeah. He didn't come because he couldn't come. He was unwell. But I met her. And she totally took me under her wing. She was a completely generous, brilliant scholar, but absolutely generous. She said, Andrew, you must come to, uh, to Monte Cassino when I'm there. And so then she uh, took me in her little borrowed uh, fiat up the hill every day. We would meet at eight and go up the hill to their monastery, chatting all the time. She would sit at the table, you know, this very experienced scholar. And I'm, you know, for the first time handling uh, these manuscripts. Uh, And so I could ask her things. And then she organized for me to go for the first time to the Vatican Library um, with her wow so she could that's fantastic. introduce me to people and then tell me how it all worked and then also she was a fragment hunter so she would was looking for any fragment of the script that is characteristic of southern italy called beneventus script and so she, anybody any chance there were some fragment she would try to hunt it down and record it she traced down like thousands of fragments wow. and 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 uh, fragments were often used in rebinding early printed books. And so often libraries, you know, that have like, say, 15th century books, and they hadn't checked the bindings, and she would want to know what's in the bindings to see if there were some of these fragments uh-huh. there. And I went with her to a, like a, a seminary library that had been closed like five years earlier. And, and you know, and we opened the door and pigeons flew out i mean it really was i mean i completely fell in love with the whole the whole thing yeah yeah you're treasure hunting yeah 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 that really is a dan brown yeah kind that of, a dan, yeah that was a dan brown moment yeah yeah i mean the libraries i'm guessing i don't know if if she actually tried this with the libraries that were still functioning and everything you know Going in and saying, "Can we can we take apart these book bindings to see if there's anything?" <laughs> I'm sure they didn't take fondly to that. Well, she knew who who to play. I mean, she she was from uh, from the south of the of the US. She had a, uh, and she she had years of experience, so she knew where you had to play what uh, card. So yes, some some libraries are very very formal. Um, in Italy, my experience has been that um, a lot depends on them knowing you and if they know you and they know that you're serious and you're to be trusted then there's there's often a fair degree of room except maybe in the very big central libraries like the you know the national library in rome or the um then it's somewhat tends to be a bit more formal and regimented but 
um, once they know you, even the Vatican Library, they're very, they're strict, but you don't feel too intimidated, I would say. The intimidation happens in them getting to know you, uh, I think, really. That's where they're checking you out. It works differently. What you have to get used to is every library has its own ethos, right? Um, yes. Some somewhat determined by national standards and somewhat determined by individuals. And uh, and, and it can change as well. Um, so you you can't go in thinking, well, it's like this and this library. I'm going to insist it works in the same in the other library. You have to go in. You're traveling to a different country. They have their own rules. You, the only thing you could, you must just abide by their rules. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't come in resistant. <laughs> that doesn't help. So the way these things usually work, just for anyone that's kind of interested and maybe hasn't had an experience in a library, usually yeah. it seems that you kind of, you have to introduce yourself. Not anyone can show up at these places. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Well, it, well, that's true it, well, for the big ones, right? So, um, so the Vatican Library, yes, you have to, well, you're passing into a different state for mm -hmm. the start. So you're crossing a board, borders. You have to get... A, a permit to enter the Vatican State, um, which you do at the entrance. It's not it's not difficult. But you come with a letter of presentation. And as a doctoral student, you're allowed in uh, at somewhat limited time. So there's, uh, I think, two or three weeks a year where they don't let doctoral students in, and only uh, senior researchers. Um, but you come with letters of presentation, and it depends a bit. They read them, and then if you have a legitimate reason to look at things, then you... I certainly had no problem. Um, um, I, I, in fact, at the Vatican Library, I've never had any problem. N nearly everything that I've requested, I've been granted to look at. Um, sometimes you might have to justify more extensively if it's a real treasure item. Mm. And certainly as a doctoral student, they might be more cautious um, because you've got less experience. Um, some other libraries, it, you know... They might have real treasures, but they're smaller, and so they have less pressure on them. And they might sometimes be combined with other functions. So there could be school children working on their school homework, and you may be at the same table working on uh, 11th century manuscript. Uh, wow. It's possible. Um, I, I've had that experience. Um, so they're not, they don't always have a whole separate section for the rare books or something like that. Um, uh, so it, it depends on the resources of and the structure of the individual uh, local library a lot. Um, and, and then they, what you do have to do is write in advance and, uh, and warn them. That, that doesn't mean they will have always read your letter, um, but it does provide you with a kind of, you can refer to the letter and you can check to see if they're going to be open or is the manuscript being restored or all of those uh, important things. You don't want to be there and the manuscript is inaccessible, right? Or they, uh, then you've spent a lot of money to get there and you, uh, uh, yeah, you're out of luck. Yeah. Because, I mean, these manuscripts, they, yeah, they sometimes they're being taken for displays elsewhere, yeah. they're being restored, they're being read by scholars, so they're not just sitting necessarily, yeah, yeah. just collecting dust. Yeah, you know, yeah, they're yeah. actively being used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How difficult, well, with uh, Dr. Brown with you, was, was that easy then to then access those gospel books for your yeah. dissertation? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, what, what's difficult uh, at that time about Monica Sino, uh, 
And still, uh, the Cassini's connection has not, well, it has got, uh, microfilms have been made, but they're not, um, so they're at the university. So what the way I would work there, so the Abbey Library is open in the morning mm-hmm. from 9.30 to 12.30. And it was every day of the week if you, I don't know that it is anymore. So I would get up the hill with her as soon as, and then I have my three hours of intense work, and then I come down the hill, have some lunch quickly before everyone went on siesta, and then go to the university where there was a microfilm collection where I could work on microfilms. Um, so I could still get afternoon work in yeah. and probably fall asleep while everyone else was having their siesta. I would be in the microfilm room um, trying to stay awake. Um, um, so sometimes, yeah, there's, there's that challenge of like opening hours uh, is a problem. But in terms of access, um, uh, it was relatively easy. At, you know, back in the day in the, in the National Library in Paris, then, you know, if, if something was microfilmed, they, I don't know how it is now, I've heard that it's changed a bit. Often there would be, well, do you really need to see the manuscript? Yes. Can right? you tell us? Yeah, yeah. and why can't you just see the microfilm? And I, that could be, you know, people want to risk the amount of mechanical mm-hmm. wear and tear on the manuscript, right? So I was usually wanting to see codicological features, so I needed to make measurements. Mm-hmm of things I needed and I needed to see scratch marks and uh, count lines and the uh, things that are very difficult to do on the basis of uh, even you can do it now with very good digital images um, but microfilm was difficult to do and you can't measure mm-hmm. on a digital image so um, I ha- or usually had a good e- excuse <laughs> to didn't always work but usually did yeah yeah yeah. And I'm sure, yeah, working on a microfilm, staring into, I always feel like is like looking into a microscope. Yeah, yeah. Like High school it. biology. <laughs> Very different experience than seeing the oh, yeah, yeah. the object in front of you and then, yeah, imagining all of these functions. Yeah, yeah. Being processed and being laid on people and people, yeah, like, yeah, that. Yeah, then you have a, a sense of a physical object, that mm-hmm. uh, how big it is, how heavy it is the sound it makes when the pages turn, mm. uh, uh, where something strange has happened in the manuscript. So clearly something's missing or something, or there's dirt in the margin, or yes. all of these kinds of things. Um, I remember uh, at Monte Cassino working on a couple of the early gospel books, and um, the way that what's really good is if you can work where there's raking light, so a light coming in on an angle. And I noticed that um, there was a kind of shiny uh, substance on the pages here and there underneath punctuation points. So from Southern Italian script, there's a particular way of doing full stop, which is a sort of three-point full stop. And um, I noticed under them there was this kind of shiny stop. And then I got a UV lamp because I was trying to check um, some erasures and then poof, all of the all of these dots came up, all over the page, the uh, throughout the book. And I think originally they possibly had a color which has gone away. Certainly they're translucent now, mm-hmm. translucent but shiny. Mm-hmm. And they 
And so the, maybe they never had any color. Um, in some places, you get a wash, a kind of color wash, to accentuate the punctuation marks for performance practice, right? So you can really see it's not just a punctuation mark. It really highlights it. And if it's in a shiny substance and you've got flickering candles, I think, I haven't tested it with flickering candles, but I think uh, that this just helps these points to stick out and shine out more. And that tells you if you're chanting on a single note, it tells you where to inflect the note, uh, how you're supposed to end the phrase. It will help you prepare a little bit mm -hmm. more. So that kind of physical, you would never see that on a microphone. Right? Yes. And yeah. you wouldn't even see that on a digital image yeah. because it's translucent. Um, so, uh, yeah, there, there are real things, not only in terms of measurement and physical dimensions and that kind of thing and weight and heft of a book. I also asked them to weigh my books. They looked at me very strangely when I asked that. But, um, uh, but, uh, but I, I also, some things on the surface of the page you can't see so easily, even with a digital reproduction. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to start asking people to weigh my books now. <laughs> Well, because a lot of the stuff I work with are kind of homilaries and things which may be traveling around. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I have to account for the modern or the 17th century binding. Yeah, yeah of course, this is always, it's always the case. It's not the original weight, um, but it gives you a sort of baseline yeah. of, um, you know, some, something, right? Uh, I, so that's what I always justified it with. That's yeah. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Librarians across Europe are going to be furious. <laughs> So they break out their scales, their, their, their kitchen scales. So like, I guess this will, this will have to do. This will have to do. So um, how did you come to be interested in this codex in particular, the Uta Codex, and go about crafting an academic um, lecture? Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So, so, yeah, the Uta Codex. How did I start working on the Uta Codex? I started working on it because, mostly because it shared a scribe with a book that I was working on for my dissertation. Mm. So uh, at Monte Cassino, I was working on the gospel box of Monte Cassino. And initially, I wanted to work on any gospel book that was there. And there were two kind of foreign objects there. One from England, made in England, uh, Winchester probably, that ended up at Monte Cassino. And a book that no longer is at Monte Cassino but in the Vatican Library, that was made in, uh, in St. Emmeram in Bavaria, in southern Germany. And when I was working on that, that second book, which is an imperial gospel book, probably donated by Henry II, I was reading about the scribes, and then I found, oh, these scribes are also known to have produced other works. And I thought, ah, you know, what I should do is find out if it's similar or not to the other works produced by the same scribe. Not only similar in production, but also similar in use. Mm. Are there, in the Henry II Gospels, it's in the Vatican Library, super fancy, not with a fancy cover anymore, but super fancy um, interior. Um, there are quite a number of little additions and corrections and alterations in it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hmm, and, and markings. And I wanted mm -hmm. to see if that's the same for the other one made in the same place, around about the same time, by some of the same people. So that's why I discovered the Uta Codex. And I wasn't really, I wasn't initially even aware of the box. Okay. 
And that's when I and then when I went to the um, the, the uh, Bavarian State Library and asked for it for the first time, I wasn't expecting to see the box because I thought the box would be in the treasury and the and the manuscript would be on its own. And and then they were very reluctant to show it to me because uh, of the treasure binding. Yes. I think because they were keep, at that time they're keeping them together. And I was totally amazed when they, they brought they it, out, it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I w- I was not expecting it at all. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I. I got interested in it. And then at that time, you know what intrigued me then? Somebody in that first meeting said to me that the book was bound into the box. And I th- and then and then I saw the hinges. Uh-huh. And the hinges are on the right-hand side of the box, not on the left. I thought, well, if it's bound into the box, that means that it must have opened uh, at how did it open? Yeah, yeah. Um, did it open at the back or at the front, or how 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 did this actually work? Mm-hmm. And that question stayed with me. You know, the book actually didn't find its way into my dissertation. Mm-hmm. I didn't end up writing about that in my dissertation at all. I had too many other things to write about. Um, but the question of the relationship between the book and its box stayed with me, and then uh, I I found a reason to sort of come back to it. Uh, being invited to talk about something in Regensburg uh, by my colleague there. I thought, well, I can talk about the Uda Codex. Then I needed to revisit my notes and be back in contact with the Bavarian State Library. And and they were very helpful to me uh, in providing photographs of features. Uh, And then I started to think through a little bit more what what might be at stake here. Yeah, yeah, in the Uda Codex and its box. It's box... It was beautiful. I, I was not familiar with this, yeah. um, and so seeing the the images uh, last night at your lecture, it is stunning. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, yeah, and and the again the the materiality that this box has lasted so long and is still pres- fairly pristine with all. Yeah, that. it's it's amazing good condition. You know, in you know at Monte Cassino, my own you know my mm-hmm. sort of my mother house, as it were. <laughs> you know, you there's nothing of that quality that survives. Wow. Uh, and not of, of of gospel books. So you know, when I was studying my dissertation, uh, 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 Professor Lawrence Nees, a really important early medieval art historian in Delaware, he said to me, you know, I think you need to find out why they weren't making, um, you know, deluxe gospel books at Monte Cassino. I think they were, in fact. But what survives are not not the top tier, not the middle tier, maybe like tier three mm. gospel books. Okay. Still high quality, but not top of the line, because I think they were all lost uh, and damaged. Um, and because Monte Cassino was too vulnerable to attack uh, and didn't, um, it was highly visible <laughs> mm. and it was constantly raided and yeah. um and also, so for various reasons, those treasure bindings were a liability, actually, mm. for their books. But so it's unusual to find the whole thing all still intact. And Sant Emmeram did a good job, and Niedermünster did a good job in keeping their treasure bindings. Yeah. Yeah. That is a fascinating problem for people interested in material history of, well, okay, in what periods was this thing in danger of being destroyed, yeah. taken apart, yeah, where, you know, with certain things, it's like recent history might have destroyed things. Yeah. And other places, you know, oh, 800 years ago, I forgot about that raid that happened right. here <laughs> that <laughs> might have destroyed it then. 
Yeah. When I was writing my dissertation, I got really interested in one problem in the manuscripts of the Abbey I was working on. Ink flaking. Oh. So this might sound hopelessly obscure, and in some ways it is. So it's the it's phenomenon of ink just flaking off the surface of the page. And so what you're left with are sort of ghost letters, yeah. you know, because the ink has bitten a bit into the parchment, so you can still see the letters, but the ink is all gone. And, um, and so I wanted to understand why this was happening. And uh, the standard response was, oh, they, didn't, they weren't preparing the parchment properly. And I didn't really buy that response because these are top-line manuscript producers. They're really producing really very good works. And also, they knew this was a problem at the time because they were retracing their letters. They would retrace their letters. Sometimes you can see the shadow of the earlier letter underneath it. So at the time that they were producing manuscripts that would later flake, they were also correcting this problem in earlier manuscripts. Interesting. Okay. So um, maybe it was parchment practice. Maybe it was something wrong with their ink. But then I thought, Mom, I read an article by an English scholar that talked about humidity and parchment and she had this fantastic case of her manuscripts that the the parchment had expanded and contracted with humidity and all of the letters had popped off the surface of the page and just floated to the gutter of the you know floated to the central fold of the of the of the manuscript and so she and then she was able to sort of track where they had encountered considerable humidity and i thought well that could be what happened at Monte Cassino. And that led me, sorry, this is a long... No, no, it's funny. But that led me to look at space and the manuscripts. Where were the books kept? Because I needed to know about humidity conditions. Um, and that led me to understand the whole, what is, where, are, where are the books in the library? I mean, where is the library? Are they in the library? No, they're not. And, and so, so where, what kinds of furniture, what kinds of rooms are they stored in? Where are those rooms within the architectural complex? What is that architectural complex's relationship to seismographic shifts, to climate conditions? Abbey Monte Cassino is constantly struck by lightning. And, um, and geographical things like thoroughfares. And if you then take into into the equation that you know the abbey is highly visible by a medieval road it's up on a high hill but any marching army coming south yeah oh there's monte casino um and then you you track through its history how many people have went up the hill to get some you know some cash as it were um then you have a, a much richer understanding of these manuscripts in space and time right how they're what vicissitudes they have encountered through through their long existence at, at Monte Cassino, their their library for for a while was right next to the warming room. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we would now probably say that's not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, fire and parchments. <laughs> and above uh, apple apple storage or f- uh, fruit storage unit, which and it had some drains running alongside it. So maybe perfectly perfectly not ideal uh, environment, we might say now. Who knows? That might have affected things. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. 
Uh, well, unfortunately, I think that's right time. all the time we have today. I don't know when your next appointment well, yes, is. We're sure keep keeping you busy. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. How can our listeners find out more about you or your work if you have anything public facing that you'd like to share? Yeah, well, you can look me up on my profile at the University of Groningen website, and there I have stuff about my research on material aspects of liturgical manuscripts, stuff about uh, the digital school book project soon, and uh, uh, Erasmus's commentary on the districts of Cato. So all, all of the stuff that I'm working on, and critical heritage studies now. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, so all of that is, I think, listed on there. Fantastic. And we will include a link in the description to uh, YouTube where we have already posted your lecture from last yeah. night. Okay. So hopefully uh, you will find your way to that. So thanks again, Dr. Irving. Thank you. Uh, And thank everyone for listening, and we hope you'll meet with us next time in the Middle Ages. Meeting in the Middle Ages is sponsored by the Medieval Institute of the University of Notre Dame with a generous grant from the Medieval Academy of America. If you have any questions for a medievalist, send them to us at meetinginthema at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at meetinginthema and Instagram at meetinginthemiddleages. For more information on some of the topics raised in this episode, head on over to the episode description. Thanks for listening.